Welcome to Family First, the wild world of marketing to parents. My name is Mark Giovino, CEO and founder at the Alliance Group. I'd like to welcome Tim McGee to this episode of Family First. Tim has had an incredible career in sports sponsorships going back to the 90s during his time at Momentum, leading sponsorships for the likes of American Express. He also spent a few years at IMG, followed by an almost five-year run leading sponsorships at AT&T that included 80 national and local properties, including the NCAA, New York Yankees, Dallas Cowboys, and the Masters, among other naming rights sponsorships. He has since had several stops along his journey, including starting his own strategic consultancy, MSP Sports, where he helps both brands and properties navigate the ever-changing sponsorship landscape. He's also had tremendous success with his own podcast called, Wait, What? A Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee. Tim, thank you so much for joining me. Mark, thank you for that kind introduction, and thanks so much for having me. Let's start with family first. Tell us about your family, how many kids, their ages, and maybe some of the activities they enjoy. My wife and I have twins, a boy and girl. Well, now man and woman, <laughs> 21 years old. They, like most people of their age, like to uh, go out and make some money. They've got summer jobs here where they're home from college, spend time with their friends, and they've caught the travel bug like my wife and I have. We're really happy to have them home this summer, but we're excited that they're going to be going back to school as well. Curious to know how parenthood has influenced your perspective during the course of your professional journey and how that's influenced and, and what that's meant to you. Well, I'd love to sit here and say that I've never missed a game or a, a concert or a recital or a track meet, but that wasn't always the case. But I always have put my role as a husband and, and father first while balancing that with the responsibilities of working for both agencies and brands. I can tell you every career decision that I have made has been based around what's best for the family. Some decisions I've made from the outside may have looked like difficult decisions, but honestly, when you view them through the lens of what's best for your family, there really is only one right choice to make. And and we've always made that choice. Let, let's talk about a recent new sponsorship you were really instrumental in bringing together between Campbell Snacks and Major League Soccer. Can you share a little bit more about how the partnership came together, how you supported and, and the story behind? Sure. My client at Campbell Snacks is a legendary figure in not only CPG brand marketing, but in sponsorships and partnerships, a gentleman by the name of Stephen Chris. And Stephen and I came up through the industry together. We crossed over briefly about 25 years ago at an agency that was owned by SFX. He went on to a long and distinguished career, first at Nabisco and then Kraft and then ultimately Mondelez. Um, he then had a couple of other stops, most notably at Tops, where he brought me on board to do some strategy work on his behalf and behalf of that trading card company. And then he joined the snack division of Campbell's about three years ago. And shortly after that, he brought me on board to help him, as he likes to put it, develop the spot. Uh, the partnership muscles within the walls of Campbell Snack Division. We started very slowly. We did a deal, a one-year deal, football only with the Pac-12 conference. We did that for a couple of reasons. Stephen wanted to test some things, see what would work. And quite honestly, I joke that we did it with the Pac-12 because we wanted to be as far away from corporate headquarters prying eyes for this first deal and still remain in the continental United States. I was going to ask you what the geographic insight was behind that, but you I, I say that half in jest. It was really because the Pac-12 gave us the opportunity 
to do something at a scale that we were comfortable doing at that point in the evolution of the partnership portfolio at Campbell's. Like I said, football only, one-year deal. Steve Zen, who's executive vice president of Pac-12, tremendous guy. He got it right from the start. He knew what we were trying to do. And so we demonstrated success by selling through product, incremental product that otherwise wouldn't have sold through in, in retail, primarily through the Albertsons chains. Albertson, Safeway, Ralph, right, in the Pac-12 network, or, or footprint, I should say. And as a result of that, we were able to secure funding the next year to not only renew that deal with the Pac-12, but then to do a, a similar deal with the Big Ten Conference. They have a very key customer in Myers as a sponsor for the conference, and it was a way for Campbell's to enhance and foster a, an even stronger relationship with that chain. And was that, that football? Was Sorry to interrupt. Was that football only as well? Yes, that's correct. And the reason we do football only, quite frankly, is because that period between back to school and holiday is a really key snacking period, right? Home gating, tailgating, watching football, whether it's professional or collegiate at home or in a stadium. And so we saw that as an opportunity for us to really, as Stephen calls it, elevate the snacking experience. And so that, then we started to get some attention and some interest internally from folks at Campbell's. It led to Stephen's group helping with some sponsorships in Cincinnati, where Kroger's is based. We were approached by the person who manages the Walmart relationship in Northwest Arkansas, and we went ahead and did a deal with the University of Arkansas. So you could see the strategy playing out across these various properties, which was number one, let's take an inside out approach to partnerships. Let's win in retail and then bring it out from the store experience. And number two, let's do things where we can really bring something to a customer, whether it's a, a Myers or a Walmart or a Target or a Safeway or a Publix or Kroger's or wherever it happens to be. That's going to be a little bit different, a little bit unique, and is going to get that display on the floor that's going to hopefully ultimately get the shopper to stop, look, and put one or two extra products into their cart that they might not otherwise have bought. So we demonstrated success. We were building those muscles that Stephen was referring to. The conventional wisdom within the walls of Campbell Snacks was that the company headquarters were going to consolidate in Charlotte where Snyder's Lance was based. We created a hometown strategy. We landed on a partnership with what was then a new MLS club, Charlotte FC. We became a sponsor for their inaugural season. And we were able to demonstrate really, really good success with incremental sell-through in retail, primarily through Harris Teeter, another team sponsor. And at that point, then Stephen was charged with exploring opportunities with other soccer properties. It's interesting, given the inside out approach, I'm sure there was some form of insights or research done to identify what was important to those retail customers starting on the West Coast. Assuming that is where you landed on the Pac-12 and then the Big Ten, or is it more of a geography play first and foremost? How did that all come together? And we looked at seasonality, right? As I said, that fall football window is very important from a sales perspective. It's one of the key selling periods. Number two, the ability to really foster those relationships with key customers, the, the grocery chains. And then where was the opportunity with consumers and shoppers? right? Where did we index well with snacking? And Major League Soccer indexed very highly with snack, college football as well. So as a result of that Charlotte FC deal, 
we then explored other opportunities within soccer. And you can imagine we looked at a number of different properties and we landed on Major League Soccer. Stephen and I have both had extensive experience working as sponsors with Major League Soccer. So we know what they're able to deliver. We know the people over there and the expertise that they bring to the table. And quite honestly, the sales team and the partnership team really try to over-deliver. They're a growing sport. They continue to grow. And we believe that over the next three years, even before it was announced that Messi was coming to MLS, that soccer was going to have a, a pretty steep trajectory leading up to the 2026 World Cup. So we began those conversations late last year. They always take time and there's fits and starts. It was a great experience working with the team over there, Carter Ladd, who runs uh, partnerships for MLS and his staff, Elizabeth McGuire and Tommy Matshiner. And we got the deal done in April. We announced the deal in June publicly. We announced the the deal internally shortly before the announcement that Messi was going to be joining MLS. And in one of those cases where it's better to be lucky than good, Steve and Chris look like the Nostradamus of American soccer doing that deal and announcing it shortly before the announcement was made that Messi was joining Inter Miami. And especially now as the season gets spun up and actually tonight, as of this recording, is his first match. Anything you've adjusted since that announcement to try to activate on a deeper level or, or in a different way in Miami or even league-wide from a greater perspective? No, I think listen, we have to be careful because we don't have we don't have inter we don't have rights to Inter Miami. We don't have rights to Messi with a personal services agreement. But we believe that it's a situation in which rising tides will help all ships. One of the assets that Campbell's gets through the partnership is a collective use of uh, four players in point of sale material and and advertising and so forth. So that's something that we'll be doing next year. I can't, I can't imagine Messi could be one of those. <laughs> well, I, you know, listen, I have no idea who's ultimately going to wind up on that packaging or POS material, but I can say with a fairly high degree of confidence that we'll be looking into it, right? Sure, um, sure. So we, there's some question as to whether or not he can opt out of that through his contract. We don't, we just don't know at this point, but, but, you know, as a fan, I'm really excited to flip on Apple TV tonight and watch Inter Miami in their first League's Cup match against Inter Cruz Azul. And we'll see when Messi steps on the pitch. My sense is he probably won't come on until the second half, but I've been known to be wrong before. And is Campbell's Snacks is the official snacking partner, correct, of Major League Soccer? Yeah, like official snack official snack of MLS, yes. And is there as much equal weight and value as you evaluate it and as you activate and not only continuing the retail pull-through, but also in grocery or other channels, but also through retail at the stadiums? How much value is there or isn't there from that perspective and yeah, so, stadium? So that's a great that's a great question. As I said earlier, we take an inside out approach, but we can't afford to do just that with Major League Soccer. It's just right. too big as a platform. And we'd be we wouldn't be maximizing our investment if we did that. We wanted to get through All Star, which was two days ago in Washington, DC. And that was Campbell's coming out party for Major League Soccer. We had video board signage and LED signage. And we we hosted some executives and had numerous conversations with other league partners, with clubs and so forth. But to get to your question about retail sales in stadium, that's going to require deals with individual clubs. And right now we only have the deal with Charlotte FC. We're going to be turning our attention very quickly to that club strategy. I would love to say that we're going to be in the lion's share of the clubs over the next year or two, but this is a big elephant for Campbell's to digest. So I would imagine we will 
very strategically pick one, two, maybe three more clubs with whom to partner. We will very much want concession sales to be part of that of that deal, that partnership. Listen, we don't have any delusions that we'll be able to liquidate a large portion of the sponsorship fee through those concession sales, but we do believe that it's an opportunity to give people a snacking experience in a time and a place where they're in a good mood and willing to try our products and purchase them. And hopefully then when they go to retail, we'll you know, we'll be able to see a lift in sales based on what I said earlier, which is that compelling POS material that will make people stop and hopefully put a couple of extra Campbell Snacks brands in their in their cart before they check out. Let's zoom out for a bit and, and talk about the greater sponsorship landscape. I'm curious to know mm-hmm. what you've seen for the last 20 plus years across the landscape. What's changed the most equally as much? What stayed the same? What what have you seen that, that's really evolved in, in your time? I think what's changed the most is the use of data and analytics in determining a success or effectiveness of a sponsorship. You go back, not maybe not quite 20 years ago, but 15 years ago, and the question I would be asked more by our head of marketing or CMO when I was running sponsorships for Singular and later AT&T, which is which was, if I have another dollar to spend, why should I put it into a sponsorship, right? With the thought being is, you know, if I put it into above the line advertising, I'll know exactly how many eyeballs are going to be on it. And when that question was asked then, it was more art than science, number one. And number two, the science part of it was very manual, right? We would have to keep spreadsheets of how many diecast cars we would sell as a gift with purchase. And we'd get the Joyce Julius figures, if you remember Joyce Julius, right? Where they would tell you how many seconds your brand was on TV during a sports broadcast and so forth. And we would compile all that information. We had a compelling story to tell, but it was manual. And as I said, it was a lot of art and not as much science. And I would say today that's sort of flipped, right? It's mostly science and less art. You but think art will always be part of the equation. Do you think it swung, this pendulum swung too far the other way, where it was used to be primarily art, very little data and science, but now it's people are over relying on data and not relying on their intuition and the art of it as much? I think it depends on the brand. Some brands are, are making decisions completely and solely based on the analytics, right? Decisions whether to keep a sponsorship in the portfolio or get rid of it. And I think um, that's a mistake? No, I think it works for those particular brands. I, if I were running sponsorships for a brand today, I would rely on more, not necessarily qualitative data, but data that doesn't necessarily result in monetization, right? You can measure everything, but whether something, whether you can make that leap from measuring it to monetizing it or, de- or determining the monetary value isn't always possible. There's a value in being able to bring your employees to a game or a match and fostering that sense of ownership within an organization. There is a benefit of having a senior executive out on the field presenting a check or making a first pitch or being heard in a video announcement or on TV, positioning not only that executive, but that organization as a leader within their community or within their industry. There's value in being able to do something that none of your competitors can the question. Exclusivity in a sense. Exclusivity, but also facilitating opportunities for customers, salespeople, prospective partners that your competitors can't offer, right? We, we brought, Campbell's brought a number of 
key customers to the all-star festivities. And it may be difficult to see if that results in increased case sales going forward, right? Because there's so many other factors going on. But certainly the anecdotal evidence is that the, the customer had a great time. It was an opportunity for the Campbell's sales folks and other executives to spend time with customers in a non-business setting, get to know them on a different level. And we know that at the end of the day, right, you want to do business with people you like, trust, and respect. And so those types of opportunities do that. I wouldn't personally want to do it completely based on analytics, but I wouldn't presume to tell a brand what works for them within their internal modeling and culture and so forth. In the hospitality assets, if you will, that you're referring to, are there any leagues or teams you feel like do it better than anyone else? I think they all do it very well um, at this point. Certainly, there's a level of hospitality at some events that can't be duplicated. If you've ever had the good fortune of going to F1 hospitality, that's so high end. And it may not make sense for CPG company whose, whose product is everyday low price product that was sold primarily in convenience stores. But for other brands, it might make tremendous sense to be able to bring people there. But I think all of the major leagues and all of the, the global properties understand the importance of being able to provide that. Do you have a favorite sponsorship or partnership you've been involved in, or, or maybe one that brings a smile to your face that you have such a fond recollection of? And curious to know what about it gives you that feeling. Are there any ones that resonate more than others over the years? Well, that's like asking me to choose my favorite child. Favorite which, kids, I know, I know. Which which I have, but I won't yes. tell you which one it is. It depends <laughs> on the day and what they've done. But no, one of the things that jumps immediately to mind was when I was working at IMG, I was overseeing our consulting engagements in the Americas here. And one of our key clients was Kia, right? The automotive company. Kia had been at that point NBA league sponsor for about five years. In any given year, they had between 14 and 18 team deals. Um, and one of the things that they would constantly challenge uh, us as their agency is to come up with new and different things to to grow excitement, to get the dealer universe more excited, more involved. One of the teams that Kia had was the LA Clippers. They had the league deal, of course, and the All-Star game was coming to what was then the Staples Center in Los Angeles. And there was a young player who was actually in his second year, although he had missed most of his rookie year because of injury, Blake Griffin, the L.A. Clippers. And as a lot of superstar rookies want to do, they want to get involved in the slam dunk competition. And by that point, the slam dunk competition had become very boring, right? There was no... Dominic Michael Wilkins, Jordan, right, Dominique, or, yep, right, yep. you know, I think Nate Robinson putting on a Superman cape or Dwight Howard putting on a Superman cape might have been the closest thing to creativity over the past few years before that. And Blake said he wanted to jump over a car in the slam dunk competition, which is quite common in, in schoolyards across the country, but it had never been done in a forum like this. And so because of the team deal and because of the league deal, we went out and we did a three-tiered partnership with Blake Griffin. We did a deal in which he would jump over a Kia and not another car. And he didn't have much choice because it was a team and league sponsor, but we wanted to ensure that he jumped over a Kia and 
in particular Kia Optima, which had just been relaunched that year. And the second, it wasn't an SUV, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. It's funny. He wound up jo- jumping over the hood, but if you saw him in rehearsals, he probably could have gone from front to back. And so the second part of the deal was that we could use that dunk if it was successful in it in an ad. And then the third part of the deal was a was a, was an ongoing endorsement deal. And so he did, in fact, win the slam dunk competition this year. We threw their creative agency. They got the spot on air within 48 hours. And Bill Simmons, the famous sportscaster, called it at the time the greatest brand integration in the history of sports. So I know the team that I was part of that got that done, we're all probably going to have that on our tombstone at the end. So that's the one that immediately and usually comes to mind. What do you see brands struggling with the most when exploring sponsorship opportunities? And I'm wondering if you just may have alluded to in your key example when it comes to keeping things new and fresh and exciting. And I don't know if that is or isn't the answer, but where do you see brands struggling with the most and and perhaps with exploring new sponsorships even? I think in general, yes, what's changed over the last 20 years or so, I think the level of sophistication has changed significantly and where you look at, where you look to, to spend your money and how you look to spend your money. But I think where brands struggle is when they don't become laser focused on what it is that they want to accomplish. As I like to say, Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland, said in that book, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. So what I like to ask a, a client, first question I ask in an engagement is what does success look like to you at the end of this the season, the sponsorship, this program, whatever it happens to be. And once you can articulate that, then we can work backwards and say, okay, well, what's the strategy that's going to allow us to ultimately accomplish that? What are the tactics that we're going to utilize to make those assets come to life and work for us? And I have always taken what I call a 3P approach, the three Ps being platform, properties, and programs. So if we go back to the Campbell's example, the platform now is soccer. One of the properties for now is Major League Soccer. Another property is Charlotte FC. And then what are the programs that underpin those properties? And we're still developing those for Major League Soccer, but doing things in store, being out in the community in Charlotte, running sweepstakes where people can win tickets to matches. Those are the types of programs that will hopefully drive the business, move the needle, whatever term you want to use. What I like to do again after you get through what is the sponsorship going to be is I like to take a literally make a list of all the assets we get in a sponsorship and map those to what area the business is going to be potentially impacted by them and then work with those stakeholders to develop the tactical execution. So, you know, tickets will go, they can be used in a sales contest. They can be used in customer hosting. They can be used in consumer sweepstakes. And so once you realize how you're going to fully utilize those assets, then you can start to develop the programming, the real tactical feet on the street execution of how you're going to maximize the usage of those assets. And that goes for every asset that you get as part of a sponsorship. How often have you been in a situation where sometimes a senior executive or even a board member, whoever the decision-making cohort might be, has a personal affinity for a particular platform and starts there in request to reverse engineer the business case versus to your point, starting with a business case first, put aside the personal affinity for a particular sport or platform or league or team. Well, listen, it still happens, right? The biggest myth in sponsorships is that the days of doing a golf 
sponsorship because the CEO likes golf is over. That's false, right? That still happens across organizations. It happens for myriad reasons. It could be ego, right, to this day. It could be because the CEO runs in circles within a particular community or area in which it is expected of him or her to sponsor certain things. And so they do it. I'm not going to name the brand. It was at one time one of the top five in the Fortune 500. It no longer is. It had global sponsorships in things like the Olympics and World Cup and F1 and other global properties. And they did not have a sponsorship strategy. When you ask the client to articulate the sponsorship strategy, they would say, we can't, we don't have one. And we had to, as uh, I was at IMG at the time, we had to then go in and sort of retrofit, reverse engineer a strategy that fit those particular properties. Now, we were fortunate because it wasn't, it wasn't done so much for ego's sake or because the chairman and CEO happened to like those properties. It was simply a case of almost like art, right? I don't know what I like, but I'll, I, I know it when I see it. It was almost like, I don't know why this makes sense for my brand and my lines of business, but I know it does. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. So it wasn't as difficult an exercise as might have otherwise happened. So we didn't have to fudge. We didn't have to lie. We didn't have to do creative writing to make that strategy work. But we created running rules that going forward would be more easy, A, for executives to articulate what that strategy is and B, use those as criteria for evaluating other opportunities that may come down the pike. There are cases where things don't make sense and you have to either do one of two things. You either have to show tough love and recommend that they get rid of it, or you, you know, often the case is you got to make the best of what you have. And, and, and is there ever a, some nuance to massage that conversation to suggest, well, if this is the property or the sponsor you feel is right, here's the story to support it. At the same time, I would recommend or we'd recommend giving a look to this other thing. So maybe it's neither one or the other, but. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And listen, you know, there are always constraints. You know, if you're the agency and you're recommending that you're constrained by the fact that you're not the decision maker, right? Hopefully your advice and counsel and expertise is considered and, and taken to heart. It isn't always, right? That's just the fact of the matter. Or if you're on the brand side and you're the one who has responsibility for shepherding that sponsorship portfolio and you've got to be able to tell the CEO why you think it's not a great deal, you might at some point come in, as you just said, and say, maybe it's not an either or. Maybe it's, hey, we maybe we consider this because we think we can achieve different objectives or we can achieve the objectives better through this new partnership. You got to be very careful telling the CEO or a CMO or a chairman or a board member that their baby's ugly. It's not a, it's not always a winning strategy for career advancement. What comes to mind, Tim, when you think about family-friendly sponsorship opportunities? I, I know you have some experience with Hershend and the Globetrotters, I'm sure among many others, but when you think about family-friendly sponsorships, what comes to mind across that landscape? 
So the first thing I think about is, is that an important audience segment for a brand to go after? It's not always, but a lot of times it is, right? Because, for example, you look at certain brands, certain categories where the purchase decision is going to be driven by the parent, right? But the kids have outsized influence on that purchasing decision. And so if you can engage that child, right, in a safe and COPA-compliant manner, you're going to make the parent happy. So I think it has an opportunity to really drive meaningful business results by treating by treating the child as an important part of that decision-making process, number one. Number two, not every kid in America loves sports. I, I was just a major league all-star and there were a ton of executives, right? Whether they were league or partner or media or just fans who brought their kids to that event. And so dad or mom is a hero in that case. And family friends friendly sponsorships can allow mom and dad to be a hero to bring their kids to a zoo or an aquarium or a family show in an arena or whatever it happens to be. So I think that it's a really important vertical within the whole world of sponsorships. One that is often not paid as much attention to as sports. When you look at the breakdown of money spent in sponsorships, probably 67, 66%, whatever it is this year is spent on sports. And the remaining third is split between fairs and festivals, family entertainment, cultural institutions, trade shows and associations and so on and so forth. But you think about it's the one thing that really attracts and appeals to the entire family, right? Even more so than a lot of sports do. Yeah, it's so true. It, and especially c- coming back to your early point with Campbell's, that that was a, a seasonal approach, a retail approach. It, it, in many ways, if a brand has a consumer segmentation approach, then this may lend itself a bit more, maybe complementary too. Again, it doesn't have to be one versus the other. It could be an and where it's complementary. So if a a particular brand has a large portfolio, like yourself at AT&T, with so heavy sports, 90 to 95%. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's other properties or other spaces to, yeah. to complement in some ways. Yeah. And smart marketers are not going to take a one size fits all approach. They're going to look at seasonality. They're going to look at geography. They're going to look at audience segmentation. They're going to look at budget, of course, which is always a major mm-hmm. consideration. And a lot of times family properties have have a, a more attractive cost of entry. Most of your career in sports sponsorships and a lot of it in, in professional and in college, let's talk for a minute about youth sports sponsorships. There was an interesting article recently highlighting the inflow of private equity funding into youth sports and likely quite a bit of consolidation that will follow. Yet to be determined if that is is a good thing or not and, and a net positive. But what are your thoughts when it comes to youth sports, where it stands today as an opportunity for brand sponsors and maybe where you think it might evolve to over the next five, 10 plus years? It's very complicated space because with NIL now on the collegiate level and potentially then you even have athletes on the high school level who are getting NIL deals. Right, we're starting to commercialize these kids as brands at younger and younger ages, number one. And I'm concerned about that. But when you look at the organizations as a whole, whether it's a soccer, you soccer organization or Little League Baseball, in many ways, they're, fa- they're family-friendly entertainment. They happen to be sports, but they're family-friendly, right? So if your kid is playing in Little League, and they're fortunate enough to go to the Little League World Series. The whole family's going to go on the trip. So I think 
a brand has to be very careful. They have to leverage the heft and the IP and the opportunities that the property can deliver to the audience without exploiting the athletes themselves. That's where I think you can really get into trouble is when you start to think of these young boys and girls as brands onto themselves. I think that's a very dangerous road to go down. I couldn't agree more. And I could imagine not only that exploitation potential or concern, but the fragmentation you allude to, and quite honestly, in many respects, the lack of sophistication and maturity in the space. Those, I have to imagine, are all headwinds facing this as a potential opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, again, you go back to the whole idea of depending on how young these kids are, do you need to worry about things like being COPA compliant? I will say on the positive side, though, there is an opportunity because you look across this country, budgets are being cut in things like arts and music, but they're also being cut in sports. I happen to live in a town that's fairly affluent in, in many parts, right? We are a very diverse community. We have probably 15% of our kids are on subsidized you know, school meals, but we also have very affluent areas of this town. And despite that, all of the, look, the sports programs are required to raise money for incremental things like trips or new uniforms or things like that. So there is the ability for brands to be able to fund those types of things. Because listen, I, I don't think anybody argues that making sports accessible to as many young people as you can is a good thing for so many different reasons. Everything from keeping kids who are in underserved communities off the street where they might be in danger themselves or might run the risk of, of engaging in behavior that's not good for them or their community or their family, to the lessons you learn for playing a sport that will carry through your entire life. So I think there is, I don't want to make it sound like there's no good that could come out of youth sports sponsorships. It's how it's approached and how that money's used that determines whether it's for good or evil, so to speak. Well, and to that point, taking it a step further, is can you protect the purity and innocence of, of what it is and should be? Can brands truly enhance it by offering the funding, which is so critical, without overstepping and crossing whatever that line might be to commercialization? And there's such a fine line there, I think is important to, to, to think about. Yeah, you cannot exploit these kids in any way, shape, or form. You can't even be perceived as thinking about exploiting these kids in any way, shape, or form because it just, it will blow back on the brands in a really bad way. And it's, you know, listen, I was a youth sports coach for over 20 years and never once when I would sit down with the parents or the kids at the beginning of the year, did I say that winning and losing was a measure of success in this, in the season. And I was fortunate to be involved in an organization where that was pervasive throughout. Um, it's about opportunities. It's about learning. It's about growing. It's about having fun. And I'm on the other side of it, Tim. I'm, I've just started within the last few years coaching my own kids. And I remember I, I love and I've adapted this as my own. I remember hearing or seeing a, a fellow youth coach and they said, the definition of success for a youth sports coach is not the wins and the losses. But if that child, if the kids on the team return to play the next year. Couldn't agree means, more. It means they've had fun and, and had a good learning experience. Couldn't agree more. I used to set three goals at the beginning of every year. For kids to have fun, for them to be more skilled at the end of the year than they were at the beginning, and to have enjoyed it enough that they want to come back next year. And if I did those three things, then I had achieved everything that I had set out to do at the beginning of the year. 
Well, and especially coaching your own kids, let's bring it back. And, and then as we started with your, with your family, you mentioned travel with the kids being on the older side now, but what are some activities or experiences you enjoy with the family and, and try to find time to do? Well, when we travel together, it's really nice to be able to experience things as a family because everybody brings their own perspective, whether my wife or I maybe have been in that place before and we're seeing it uh, in a new way or whether it's just spending time in a car or uh, on a plane with the kids where you have a captive audience. That's a lot of fun. My Both my kids have taken up the cooking bug, so we'll we'll cook or grill together. And now that they're getting older, my daughter's got an apartment and she can't afford to eat out every night. So that's a skill that she's going to find useful. And my son has always been a picky eater. So we got to some point where we said, all right, well, you want to eat, you're going to have to learn to cook for yourself because we're not running a diner. So he enjoys that. That's something that we enjoy doing as well. And then we have, and then we have certain shows, right? It's hard to find shows that all four of us will watch. Maybe three of us will watch one series and another three will watch another series and things like that. So you don't have to always do things completely as a group. It's nice sometimes to have one-on-one time with your kids or maybe with one of the kids and my wife and I, or whatever it happens to be. Any chance the family got into Ted Lasso being a sports centralized around sports, but yet so many life lessons. Uh, My wife and I did, my kids did not. My kids did not, but that was certainly one of my favorite shows of the last five years. No doubt. That was fun. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate you giving us the time. Mark, thanks so much for having me. Have a great weekend. And thank you for listening in to this episode of Family First, the wild world of marketing to parents.